Welcome to episode 8 of the Dead Serial Podcast. I'm your host, LJ. Before we get started with my guest, Tom Flanagan, I would like to give a quick shout out to the Fan Addicts YouTube channel. This is with Joseph Limbaugh and Ben Johnson. It's a YouTube channel focused around films and TV shit. You might remember Joe from episode 2 of this podcast. He will be joining me in the future. So if you want an opportunity to get to know Joe a little bit better, do me a favor. Check him out on YouTube and give him a subscribe. I'm excited to sit down today with Tom Flanagan. He's a former Marine, an archaeologist, and a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of Utah. He's worked on several projects from Alaska to Egypt and has been a patch holder in the Marines Motorcycle Club for over 10 years. Uh, I've been looking forward to sitting down and catching up with Tom, so without further ado... Tom, thanks for coming over and hanging out. How are you? I'm I'm great. Nice, man. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Uh, I know you from my bartending days of the Republican. Yes. A we, long, long time ago. Back when we were regular regulars, yeah. Yeah, regular regulars. Regular Very regulars. Nice. Uh, obviously, through that, I got to know you a little bit. You're an archaeologist. You're a patch holder in the Marines at MC. Yep. What else are you into? What, I mean, what's up? How'd you, what, what set your course down that path of archaeology? Oh, that's, well, that's kind of an interesting thing. I, uh, so, so like many, many young lads of my generation, uh, about second grade, my family went and saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> and uh, I distinctly remember watching all the Nazis' faces melt off at the end, and I thought that was kind of a gig for me. Um, but I, uh, I didn't really know a whole lot about archaeology. It's really a subset of anthropology. But, uh, you know, after I kind of grew up and I went in the military for a while and I got out and I didn't really think I was probably smart enough to go to college because that's where <laughs> smart people go to learn things. And, and if you'd seen my, my, uh, my high school career, you wouldn't think that I would have ever had college in my future. Um, <laughs> Much like myself. Yeah, actually. it's kind of one of those things. I think they were pretty well. I think I, I think they were kind enough to graduate me because I already had a ticket to boot camp. So I think that's kind of how I got out of high school. They didn't want to hinder you going on that. They didn't want path. to see me for another year, basically. <laughs> right? I think my geometry teacher, especially. What branch of the military? The Marines. Yeah, I was in the Marines. Yeah. Nice. How long were you in the Marines? Uh, I was on active duty for a little over four years. I extended a little bit to go on a, another deployment. I spent most of my time um, being deployed. I, I went in when I was 17 and uh, you found out pretty quick in the military back then that uh, if you were under the age of 21 and you were stationed in the United States, there wasn't a whole lot that you could really do uh, as far as you know, all my friends would go out. I was kind of the youngest guy in my unit. Most of the guys were, of course this was back before we had all of our other overseas excursions in the last yeah. you know, 10 or 20 years. Prior to the global right. war on terror. Right, this was like early 90s. In fact, actually, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait when I was halfway through boot camp. So we kind of went through the whole Berlin Wall coming down in peace and nice. love and happiness. And then that kind of happened. So sort of on the ground floor of that. But yeah, it's like most of the guys I served with uh, were so much older than me. They would they would all go out and have a good time in town. And, <laughs> and I would wind you up just sitting in the barracks. So I, back in the barracks. Right, so I started volunteering for every chance I could to go overseas and, and actually... You know, enjoy myself a little bit and see the world. So, um, so when I got out of that, and and uh, my friend uh, had a buddy that went in the army at the same time, but he just went in for two years, and he had gotten out and started going to school, and kind of hinted that I could probably do the same. So he kind of took me under his wing and nice. and, and kind of got me going there. So I started started going to school in Dillon, Montana, which is sort of a little little cow college up in Montana. You know, where you. <laughs> 
it was kind of the safe place where everybody sent their their kids. So it was kind of funny. It was almost kind of like being back in high school again because uh, most of the students were so young. But it was pretty much where all the students went that their parents didn't want them to go to Big Bad Missoula and become a bunch of liberal hippies. So you know, it was kind of the is, safe. Is Missoula, Montana, known for? Yeah, it's kind of it's a bit of a liberal enclave. Yeah, so. So I started out there and, and got all my generals out of the way, and then I did transfer to the University of Montana, and that's where I got my bachelor's degree. How did you wind up in Utah? Um, well, that was actually a job. So I was uh, after, so I went to Missoula, I uh, got my bachelor's degree there, and then I went up to Fairbanks, Alaska, and got my master's degree. I kind of studied the people in the New World, how you know Native Americans first came over at the Ice Age, and, and looked at all that stuff. And then uh, I got my first kind of permanent archaeology job and wound up in Nevada for a couple of years. And then I had an opportunity to get the hell out of Ely, Nevada. <laughs> so I took it, um, so I even though I, I really enjoy the job, but yeah, it can be a little taxing. Yeah. And I had an opportunity to come here and uh, got here in 2004 and been here ever since. And since then, do you not only went to the University of Utah, but you teach at the University um, of Utah? I do, yeah. I teach, uh, I usually teach. I just teach one class there in the in the spring. What uh, class is that? I teach basically it's kind of like a public archaeology class, the kind of archaeology that I do. Nice. Um, and it's the kind of it's it's really the kind of archaeology that most archaeologists actually do. Um, I'm pretty famous for being quoted that over over 85 percent working archaeologists do this, and, but there's not a lot of training for it. So you know, a lot of times people go to school for archaeology. It's very academically focused. Um, they don't necessarily really prepare them a lot of times for the reality of the job market. So I kind of tailor that class so that students what they can expect right. This, this is this transition. Yeah, it's kind of profession from school. Flanagan's version of archaeology <laughs> and reality, and and uh, what I always tell the students is, you know, if nothing else, the class buys them the fact that the next Thanksgiving when they're drunk and Uncle asks them what the hell they're going to do with an anthropology <laughs> degree, they'll at least have an answer even if they don't wind up doing it for a living. So, nice. Well, good on you. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Couple similarities to Indiana Jones. There's a well, <laughs> professor. <laughs> yes, well, you know, and, uh, and fighting Nazis and all right. that kind of stuff. Which is yeah. fine. I, I yeah. agree with that. I love that long-running theme with Indiana Jones. How he's very anti. Well, that's the nice thing with Nazis. You know, I mean, yeah, it's not usually up for debate. Although occasionally these days, I guess it is. Um, whether or not Nazis are good guys or bad guys, but I think pretty much they're bad guys. We can all agree that they're bad guys, and it's okay to have their faces melt off whenever, yeah, whenever possible. Uh, aside from that, obviously with uh, the Marines MC, you have a, a big role in that, but the Wasatch Motorcycle Swap Meet? Yeah, we do have the 7th Annual Wasatch Front Motorcycle Swap Meet coming up on June 9th, and that's at the VFW Post up on Highland Drive in Salt nice. Lake City. Um, and that's been really great. The first few years we used to do it at the, uh, the Marines Motorcycle Club Clubhouse, kind of at our back lot there. Um, but it's been really nice to be able to use the VFW. They've got a nice big lot and it's got, it's paved as opposed to our other venue, which was dirt, which would be the BP mud, yeah. uh, depending on the weather, uh, a couple different Junes. So it's worked out really well for us. We started there last year and I think we're going to maintain having us nice. having the swap meet up there. Before I discovered the Republican, the basement bar at the VFW off Highland was my, my well, go-to. And, uh, and I'll tell you, yeah. we've actually, theme well, and that's what's really cool about it. A lot of people don't really look around that place. And, and we actually got, because of the kind of archeology span and history that I do, um, I actually got talking to the folks at the VFW, and we're, we're working on trying to get that place on the National Register of Historic Places. That would be badass. Because a lot of people go downstairs, and they don't really look around, and they don't really realize at first 
that the entire basement of that place was built by members of the VFW and it's basically a ship. Yeah. You're in a it ship. It absolutely is a um, ship. But people, some people just gloss over it, you know, and it's yeah. like, you see, the more you look around, you realize you're in a, you're in a hand-built ship. Yeah. And it's really cool. No, it's badass. So, I love it. Yeah. It's I just, so love going there. Yeah, it's pretty slick. Cheap beer on draft and cheap whiskey. And yeah. The pool tables are always open. The jukebox has... It's old school. A small selection, but a good selection of, of tunes. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's old school for yeah, sure. It's definitely a cool place. So when you say we started it, does that, the swap means something you personally founded or is a group with the Marines? And well, yeah, I kind of, well, I kind of sold it. I kind of sold it to my brothers uh, to, to do this thing. And, and really the, it's kind of, it, like most things in my life, it kind of arose out of my own laziness. <laughs> I had a, uh, I had basically a garage and a couple of sheds full of motorcycle parts at that point, you know, 30 years of them that I had strewn throughout my life that were taken up boxes. And the idea of selling them on eBay was a bit daunting because I didn't want to have to go to the post office and package stuff up and rely (laughs) on people to pay me for them. So I thought, hey, why don't, you know, we never, I never see a swap meet. Now there's a few of them that people have I've seen, but uh, at that point I had never seen anybody hold a bona fide swap meet like the old days. So I said, hey, how about I just set this up and even if it's just me with a card table and my parts, um, you know, at least I'm not going to the post office and we'll see how it works out. Yeah, it's and, been pretty successful. Yeah, that first, especially that first year that I did it, I think we had over 500 people come through the gate. The entire lot was full. Holy was, shit. Like, I said, I was worried about it just being me. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, we had over 500 people come through. I sold almost everything I had. And <laughs> uh, now I just now I just kind of show up with the, the broken things that nobody ever wanted just to set it up to look good. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it was it was phenomenal and it's been it's been a good deal ever since. How do you advertise for that? Is it pretty much word of mouth? It's pretty it's pretty low key yeah. because yeah. you know we don't um, we don't really have a budget for it. It's not a money making venture really. We charge five dollars for people to get through the gate, and that's pretty much the extent of it. And what does that cost go towards? Um, it's a, it, a, like a fundraiser for. Yeah, it's the kind club? of like our yearly nice. fundraiser, but um, and it, and the reason it's five bucks is because you know we don't charge people to set up tables. If somebody wanted to come and set up three tables, or bring in a trailer, or a pickup truck, yeah, um, or just come in and look around, it's all five bucks, and that's to also to encourage people. Like it doesn't cost them any more. Um, to show up and actually set something up. And parts and participate. Right. Because, and the thing is, if, if people don't show up and bring their own stuff, there's nothing there for anybody else to see. So we don't want, yeah. you know, we don't want to penalize people who are the draw, who are the people that are bringing stuff to set up. So it's five bucks no matter what you bring, and you can set up as much as you want, and we will find a place to put it. Oh, yeah. And one so, more time, that's when and where? That is June 9th at the VFW on Highland in Salt Lake City, and it's from 1 to 5 p.m. And set up time if you're going to come and set up tables or set up your trailer and stage all that stuff. We do that from 11:30 to one. But technically, the gates open at one for the general public who are just coming in to to buy, sell, and trade. Hang out, nice. Hang out, yeah. yeah and there's and awesome. we have uh, the VFW provides food and they've got food and drinks, including you know everything, soft drinks to beer, and they've got hamburgers and everything. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. So and, well, but, the VFW is another great thing. Yeah, to and support. you're also supporting them. Yeah. And uh, but it's it's not you know it's we obviously it's focused on motorcycle parts and bikes and basket cases and literature and memorabilia and everything else. But I mean we've had people like David Overstreet used to come with his art. Um, hopefully he'll come back again at some point. I'm unfamiliar with David uh, he, he does a lot of uh, uh, like the stencil art you see. Um, he does a lot of stuff with uh, um, the different like Salt Lake like Facebook pages and stuff. Nice. But we've had art booths, we've had jewelry, 
it's almost kind of like a flea market. So you could literally bring, as long as you're not basically selling food or drinks, yeah, because uh, we don't want to cut into the VFW's <laughs> bottom line. They you wouldn't can, appreciate you. You could basically bring anything you want, and we'll be happy to have you. If, if it's right. motorcycle themed, great, and if it's not, we'll still find a place for you to put your table. Well, I've never come out and checked it out, so this year I'm making it a priority. Well, now you're to gonna have to aren't hang you? out. Yeah, you kind of yeah, outed exactly. yourself on that. So we'll be seeing People you. People can call me out. We'll be seeing you. And it's I think documented. We, we might you said you were gonna be there. Yeah, and I think we'll have some music too this year too. So nice. Some live what type music. of music are you thinking? Um, well, actually, we got a couple different, a couple different folks. No spoilers. Well, we don't want we don't want to you know have the we want the we want the swap meet to be the draw. You yeah. Know? If it if the press gang union winds up you know being the draw, then so be it. Nice. Um, not saying that they would do something like that. But, but if they were so, but, but if I might try to twist their arm, yeah. they might they might you know be the be the launch pad <laughs> for something like that. See if they can. Well, I love those guys. Films. That's a great local yeah, band. They're too. a good friend of well, they, of ours. Right, and you were there uh, last night. I last assume. night, your guys' was fundraiser, rough fundraiser. Yeah, it's also the United. So yeah. we had a fundraiser last night. Uh, we actually cut out a little bit early. Go down to Copper Pellet Press. We're kind of have a sort of apprenticeship with Cameron Bentley, who owns and operates yeah. that. We're going to run a space. and Also a veteran of the Republican. Yeah, right? yeah. he's still down there doing game night Monday nights. Nice. And, uh, uh, it's been rad that after working with Cam and then not working with him for so long, going down to the shop and learning how to print from him because we already know how to mesh. Yeah. And it's kind of reminiscent. Uh, reminiscent wow. A couple of cores banquet, Remin- some Murphy's Remin- Irish style. Let the professor help you. Reminiscent. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Teach. Uh, but yeah, so that that's cool. But uh, I think it's Hi-Fi Murder and then Press Gang played. And those guys, the opening band was awesome too. So cool. Had a little raffle, hopefully made some money for the club. And I, I haven't talked to Thomas, our president, yet. But typically, we've been having success with that. Dustin Madsen's kind of the driving force behind it. And, he kills it. He killed it again this year, so yeah. it was badass, dude. Yeah, well, you know, Dustin. Yeah, good old Dustin. <laughs> yeah, perfect. So hopefully he'll tune in and, and catch that shout-out. With archaeology, what, what? I mean, from Alaska to Egypt, what's kind of the biggest moment that you had oh, going through that journey? Well, adventure. well, there's been a lot of moments, <laughs> good, good, bad, or indifferent, but, uh, but no, I mean, I just kind of, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things to it. I mean, the, the thing that I really like about archaeology and really anthropology, and when I say anthropology, so basically a lot of people say, oh, you go get a degree in archaeology. And in the United States, you really don't get a degree in archaeology. Yeah. Um, and the old world, you can actually focus on like an archaeology degree, but the way that um, it's run in the, in the United States is it's basically a four-field approach of anthropology. So in anthropology itself, you have cultural anthropology. These are the guys who will go out, guys and gals who will go out and, uh, say, study a living tribe. Okay. You know, like the folks that go down to the Amazon and live with people and figure out how they live and stuff. Those are cultural anthropologists. So um, anthropologists? Anthropologists. Just anthropologists. Right, right. Well, cultural Sorry. anthropologists. Cultural anthropologists. Thank you. And then you have physical anthropologists, and they're the ones that do everything from like sort of like the CSI forensic stuff to the human evolution stuff. They basically focus on the body, right? Okay. The, the, um, the skeletal system, other aspects, a lot of DNA stuff these days. Um, you have linguistics, people who study languages and the evolution of languages. I actually recognize that one. Oh, good. And then, uh, <laughs> and then of course, archaeology. Yeah. And the reason I like archaeology is because it kind of encompasses all the other fields because you kind of have to know. Utilize everything. Right. You have to kind of be a jack of all trades. You have to, I'm not saying I'm good at all that stuff, but you know, I mean, yeah. you, you kind of have at least a, 
a sidling glance of, of knowledge and all these different things to sort of bring it to bear an archaeological issue because when you're dealing with people in the past, we're looking at the entire sort of totality of, of, of what we're kind of looking at. But we're deducing that back from, you know, in, in archaeology, all we've got is the stuff. Yeah. It's material culture. It's There's just nobody things. there to say, hey, this is how we live. This is right. So, what we did, our culture, et cetera. You have to piece it together. Yeah, you have to piece it back together yeah. from the little scraps that we find. And, of course, we never find the whole story. You know, you find <laughs> little bits and pieces. I think what's frustrating to most people that get into archaeology is, you know, you always think about all the TV shows and the movies and, uh, you know, people want to reconstruct people's, you know, ancient religions and all this other kind of crazy stuff. And that sounds really sexy, but the reality yeah. is we don't have that kind of data. You can't you can't excavate up abstract thought, right? You know, right. it's just like it's just like the old adage: if a, if a Martian archaeologist came and they found a crucifix, would they know that that's even religious? Would they think it's a key? Would they think it's a tool? Would they think would it's would a they, random piece of yeah. structure that was part of a house? Yeah. Would they think why? Or would they think it's really strange that people are carrying around these little crosses with a with a guy nailed to them? Um, would you be able to reconstruct Christianity based on finding a crucifix? A single crucifix. <clears throat> right. Or so, several small right. crucifixes. No, and and that, that, entire, that entire system, you know, so, so people oftentimes will infer way past um, the little scraps of, of the past that we actually have. So you kind of have to get thick skin early on and learn that you're not going to you're not going to figure it all out, you know. Unfortunately um, not. No, but I mean, but it's also fortunate because if we could figure it all out, I'd be out of a job. So I can consider, I can continue to just kind of have a career based on bullshitting people about what I think. <laughs> and then I can always change that story later. And, yeah, you know, based off of new evidence, your right. opinion or perspective can change. Right. I mean, and, and to the chagrin of some other archaeologists, but I've always said archaeology is a, it's, it's a science of consensus because okay. I'll never necessarily know if I'm exactly correct, um, but my job as an archaeologist is to use what we call strong inference. Do I have enough evidence that, that is the most likely and plausible explanation given the amount of evidence that I have for what I'm saying I believe uh, I'm looking at? Okay. So if I can basically convince you that I've got enough evidence that I'm on the right track, Evidence A, that, B, C, right. D that supports right. my theory, and, and that basically direction. makes you quote unquote correct um, until the next person yeah. comes along and, and destroys everything that you built and <laughs> calls you an idiot. And, then, and that and that's and that's par for the course because that's what most graduate students do. I mean, the most typical graduate student uh, project you're going to get out there is you go and you take somebody else's. The hypothesis and you blow holes in it, pick it apart, you know, and you pick it apart, it. and yeah. it's an exercise in critical thinking, and you know, and, and uh, but that's pretty much how, and that's how science progresses, anyways. Yeah, people don't prove things right, science progresses by proving things wrong, and I think that's one of the big issues that we have when we you're talking about science and you're talking about, say, someone that might believe the world is 6,000 years old based on a <laughs> sadly, those individuals say, based on, say, based on a specific book they may have read once. Right. Um, and the fact is that they no amount of evidence is ever going to prove that person wrong because they're not basing it on evidence. They're basing it on faith. Yeah. Um, and that's and that's and if you want to base something on faith, that's completely you know within your purview to do it. But I think where where a lot of that gets a little bit hinky is you have to understand the very definition of faith. Right? Is is believing in something in the absence of any evidence. Yeah. You don't need evidence if you have faith. And, and I think that that's where a lot of the, especially the, like the creation science and a lot of the other folks um, get 
into trouble is because they'll they'll try to cherry pick bad science to support their claims, their claims when the reality is if the best way that they can make their claim is to say they don't need any evidence because they have faith right as opposed to using really shit science <laughs> um, a dinosaur track in a you know next to a human you know or some, you know yeah. shit like that people riding dinosaurs and you know but it's just a there's actually a, an artist piece and I've got a friend who has it tattooed uh, I can't remember who did it I believe it was a local artist of Jesus riding a dinosaur yeah that is a popular Which is one. historically accurate, believe it or not. Well, it depends on whether or not he's got a saddle or not, because saddles are a much more recent thing. If you see he's riding with a saddle on a Velociraptor, then you know it's bullshit, because he'd be bareback in that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Back in the day. But, um, but anyways, absolutely. it's just... But yeah, I mean, you, you kind of get into it. You know, people try to draw you into these things, but I think, you know... Uh, Richard Dawkins probably summed it up the best. He's always got this story that he talks about where... He's got this uh, scientist who had this, you know, theory that he had proposed and had done papers on and research on for 15 or 20 years. And that was like his keystone thing. That's why this guy was well known is because of this theoretical framework in that there was a, a younger scientist that came up basically during this big kind of symposium to honor this guy. Okay. And, and basically comes up with his research, which completely negates this guy's stuff. And just blows it, just destroys it, right? Blows them out of the water. And and the old and but this is and this is the quintessentially scientific thing to do is then the guy comes up to the podium and says, "Thank you so much. Now I know I've been wrong all these years." You know, and that's science as opposed right. to you know saying, "Well, you know, yeah. fuck I, that guy." Yes, fuck that guy. Well, I'm right. They're right. wrong. Yeah. But I mean, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I mean, a scientist can get entrenched as well, you know, in their yeah. pet theory and then try to start. Well, if you on. work very hard towards something and you put time and effort into it right. and you work on it, I imagine those types of things take years. Yeah. Well, there's no such thing as speed archaeology as well. I mean, archaeology is the kind of thing that, it, you know, it's, 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 in, it's gruelingly slow. And, it, and it's very difficult to, not just in the work, but even just in the education part of it. Because you do have to kind of know enough to bullshit people, like I said, about just about everything. I mean, it's like, you know, when if you go get a master's degree in education or something like that, and that's not to belittle, of course, any of that. But, you know, you might get a project, you might do some things, you might write a thesis about it. But, you know, I mean, you don't have to start with, well, in the beginning, you know, and reconstruct the entire paleo environment of the West Desert for the last 18,000 years and talk about all the archaeological research. Nice one there. All the archaeological research that's taken place to bring it to bear on what you're talking about. So just just the background information alone that goes into any project you work on can take literally years to pull together. That's insane. Yeah. Well, it's like I'm, I'm on the long-term program, right? I mean, I've languished now and then because I also have a full-time job, so I'm kind of picking at this Ph.D. game. But uh, <laughs> How long have you been picking? About eight that? years, really. Holy um, shit. Which, which seems like a, an insane amount of time, but then I also know that, and I won't call any of them out, um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've had friends who have done nothing but work on that stuff who aren't necessarily working a full-time job and, say, raising... Like when I first started my PhD, I was basically raising a two-year-old by myself, right. and uh, and and doing all that stuff. And it took them 15 years. So I'm still on the advanced plan right now. You know, I mean, so anytime you know, sometimes my wife gets a little persnickety with me because I'm because I've kind of you know I'm on the extended plan, but I always. The problem is when I bring in all it's this a stuff. Done, not a race. Right, and then when I bring in all this stuff, I'll like, well, you know, so-and-so took 15 years. She doesn't want to hear. It doesn't play no. well with her. It sounds perfectly reasonable to me, but, you know. 
I have many moments like that in my yeah. life, so I understand what you're saying. I haven't had Murphy's in a long time, so mm. salute. It's that, not that's too bad. Delicious. It's I appreciate like you bringing that over. Yeah, no problem. Well, you know, St. Patty's Day is approaching. It is coming, Flanagan. You're obviously Irish. A little bit. You're from Hi- is it Hibernia, Hi- Montana? Hibernia, New Jersey. Yeah. New Jersey. Oh, that's right. You moved, moved to Montana. Yeah, I was born in Hibernia, New Jersey, which is of course Gaelic for Ireland. So right. that gives you probably a little bit of a hint. Flanagan's not very Irish. No, at all. it's not. I think it's some sort of Scotch-Irish <laughs> thing. I think. Scotch that'd Irish. be closer to my family, certainly. <laughs> Andrews. Yeah, so. but uh, so, anyways, yeah, I, uh, you know, was kind of grew up there until I was about seven, and then we moved out to Montana when I was in like, second grade, and I was pretty much did the rest of my stint there before uh, graduating high school and moving on. But nice. um, heritage-wise, are you? Is your family directly from Ireland, or is that uh, third or fourth generation? No, it's a couple. It's a kind of couple of mishmash generations. My my mom's side was was uh, sort of uh, my dad's mom was actually I think uh, Czechoslovakian, and then oh, very uh, cool. but then um, so a little bit of everything. But yeah. you know the the Irish is kind of the salient on both sides, so it kind of <laughs> rises to the fore. And even if you weren't, even if I was, you know. Uh, some sort of squatting slob uh, with a name like Flanagan, I would just say I was Irish anyhow. <laughs> own it. You have to own it. Well, I just ask because I think it's interesting as Americans, we're all immigrants. Right. And that's the beautiful part of our country is this melting pot of a bunch of different people with different opinions and backgrounds and politics coming together. But at the same time, it, I like that history of where we come from as right. people, regardless of where it is. But my dad's side is Scottish. My mom's German English. Right. And it's nice to be able to be kind of a part of all those different cultures. Yeah, heritage. and it's and it's also kind of interesting, especially out west, because you know, not growing up in New Jersey, really. Um, of course, the irony too is when I moved to Montana, being from New Jersey, everybody thinks you're from a city. The reality was where I was from in New Jersey was more rural than anywhere <laughs> in Montana. Montana. I mean, it, was, it was in the sticks. <laughs> you know, I remember our post office was literally a house trailer. Oh wow! And uh, it was kind of like the northern tip of Appalachia, you know, but uh, <laughs> but still being like an hour from New York City, so it was kind of a weird place. But uh, but what's so interesting was when you do go back east, like how, you know. In the West, you're kind of Euro-American, you know, everybody's either, you know, you, you can have all these different ancestries, but people don't necessarily cling to it quite as right. much. Whereas you go back East and you literally have a neighborhood that's like, you know, you've got Polish on one side of the street oh, yeah. and Norwegians on the other still and Irish and, you know, it's like... It's I still... spent a lot of time in Boston and, and for me it was cool in my early 20s to travel alone for the first time. I had a girlfriend at the time going to the school museum of fine art out there and for me, I've been to Brooklyn and New York for a quick trip in 2001, but then I really got to understand that big city culture. Of, yeah. No, this is actual Chinatown. Yeah. And the North End, which is basically Little Italy. Right. And South End, you just have these different neighborhoods of different communities. Right. Where, where different ethnicity places. isn't something that you just talk about over a Murphy's. Yeah. Or a Guinness. You know, yeah. The Republicans, oh, well, that's, you know, when you actually have a reality of ethnicity um, that actually, you know, is, is sort of a, the ethnic geography of, of different cities and towns and things like yeah. that, which is really interesting um, when you get kind of east of the Mississippi, um, which you don't necessarily <laughs> get out here. But that's kind of also the neat thing about it, too, that especially out west that, I mean, while that's interesting, it's not necessarily desirable. Right. And, and it's... Uh, but but just how like you said how you are how we are a melting pot and how different even different parts of the country um, 
kind of come together. There was actually a really neat book that I heard about uh, recently. I think it's called 13, I might be wrong. It's like 13 Nations. Okay. And it was actually, uh, I heard an interview about the guy who wrote it on NPR, and it really goes into like the different, even Euro colonization of different ethnic groups throughout uh, the United States and, and, and the role that that really played in that kind and of primarily um, focus on the 13 colonies. Well, no, it really wasn't the colonies. It was actually okay. the, like, even just like cultural areas that we have now oh, okay. um, throughout the country. And, uh, and, and especially in some of the stuff in Appalachia is really interesting because they were, um, he talks about the fact that even during the Civil War, I mean, they were almost fighting against the South and the North because they were almost their own thing, the sort of Scotch-Irish sort of hillbilly types, you know, that had their own their own deal and they didn't really want to be a part of any of it. But it's just how these different parts of the country actually evolved based on a lot of that ethnic makeup and, and how they saw the West uh, versus the East and, and how they kind of almost debilitated the West for a while. Like, they didn't want us to have stuff. Because we were just here to sense to, to produce things and send it's it back east to the consumers. Right. They didn't want us to set up shop and actually be able to be self-supporting out here because they wanted us reliant on things coming from the East Coast and these whole trade networks. Just a really interesting thing. I'll, I'll get I'll the love actual yeah, title no, of that. Please do. But, um, but yeah, even with immigrants, I mean, that was the whole reason why even uh, my graduate work, when it, the reason I went to you know, bumfucked Alaska to get my master's degree <laughs> was because... Um, I was interested in the people in the New World when you know when when modern humans actually colonized North America, right? Which they did somewhere is probably between fifteen and eighteen thousand years ago at the end of the last ice age coming over from oh. Northeast Asia. And what was there? I'm going to prove how uneducated I am here, but there was the during the ice ages the bridge that connected the two different right. continents. Right, but I, but here but there's a very good. I almost wish they never called it the Bering Land Bridge. Bering because, Land Bridge, thank Because you. It, it sets up in everybody's mind this sort of false narrative about, you imagine you imagine this little strip of land connecting Alaska to Russia with people sort of like literally like walking that's along exactly it, teetering right. along the land I bridge. I imagine, you know? yeah. Um, and that's not the case. When, when sea levels were, so during the last ice age, you had so much of the Earth's water was wrapped up in glaciers. Sea level was like 50 meters lower. The Bering Sea is not very deep. Okay. Um, to the point to where it would literally be like dropping Australia in between Alaska and, and Russia. Holy shit. Beringia, you would have no concept. <laughs> you would basically be in this giant savanna grassland, which also sounds counterintuitive because you're thinking Ice Age, you're thinking... Right. You know, you always see these grassland. pictures like mammoths, side, about, these yeah. mammoths walking rock across Falling these ice mammoths. sheets. It's yeah. like, have you ever seen an elephant eat ice? Never. That's not what they eat. They eat grass. <laughs> you telling me an elephant can't survive on no, ice No, it can't alone. apparently survive on an ice sheet. <laughs> so when you go up there, paleontologically wise, you've got what they call sort of the holy trinity of grazers, right? There's buffalo, bison basically, bison, horse, and mammoth. Okay. These are all grazers. These all eat grass. And when you, you know, that's why every spring when the, when this, when the you know, all the snow thaws out and, and rushes down all these Alaskan rivers and in the, in the Yukon um, and in Siberia, You've got all these mammoth tusks tumbling out, and all these other critters coming out of the coming out of these stream banks, is because this was a huge grassland. It was a huge what they call a steppe environment, kind of like Mongolia is today. That big grassland okay. steppe. Yeah. So imagine that as far as you could see. You would never you would never know that you were teetering on the land bridge because this thing would literally went from the top of Alaska to to the bottom of the Aleutians all the way across. And if you think, and a lot of people don't really understand the scale of Alaska. If you drop Alaska over the lower 48 and you include the illusions, it goes yeah. from Canada to Mexico from the east coast about to here. 
That's not how it looks on my globe. No, I know. Well, yeah, your globe's a little hanky. <laughs> but, um, but no, that's crazy. Yeah, you would never. Yeah. So, so that, so I think that's a big misnomer, and that's why some people are always dicey with the plausibility of this land bridge. Yeah. Because of how they envision it, and that's just simply not the case. Well, and it seems like I remember in school when they were teaching us about that, they literally had a picture of mm-hmm. an ice bridge connecting right. the two continents. Right, and woolly mammoths and, and of course, crossing it. And of course, while <laughs> while the sea level rises, yeah, at the end of it, there probably was a smaller strip that was still that sort of connecting tissue between okay. the two continents. But for the better part of say, you know, fifty thousand years ago, up until the, t- you know, ten or twelve thousand years ago, that was still a big open expanse that you would never have have known that you were again on a land bridge of any kind. But people probably came across that way. They come into the Yukon. They wind up dropping down between a couple of ice sheets, probably into Montana, and then also um, another competing. I w- they, I, they call it a competing hypothesis, but it's kind of silly because archaeologists competing hypothesis. Uh, define that for well, just like not so for it, me. I know exactly. So what another idea would listeners. be: you're not teetering on the land bridge, but you're kind of skiffing along the coast on some like some boats and canoes and kayaks okay. and things like that. And then these Ball guys the get down, right? Just coastline. Which, which is kind of silly because as much as archaeologists are always talking about, well, there's all these multivariate things and different ways people do stuff, and then at the end of the day they still come down to one or the other as opposed to it's probably a combination of that, obviously. Um, the fact that people are probably, yeah, there probably are people skirting the coast, yeah. and there are probably people coming They're across on land. They're making boats and exploring so, yeah, and I mean, the coastline. It absolutely makes yeah, sense. So, so we know people can make boats because they colonized, you know, modern humans colonized Australia 50,000 years ago, and they had to cover at least, I think, 30 to 50 but kilometers. The- planet is only 6,000 years old. I know. And I, thanks for reminding me of that. I often forget this. I have to be a smart in these In these conversations, I often forget. Uh, well, I think we're coming up on a half hour. Okay. We'll, we'll take a quick break and, and come back, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about pop culture or music or movies a little bit. All right. Maybe we'll continue on. Perhaps. About anthropology. We, we only know where the road will take us. Okay. Sounds good. out there a little murphy's here we had a little intermission courtesy of the magnificent and legendary john williams <laughs> the raiders of the lost ark is the the main indiana jones theme i snagged for us yeah on our break makes me there. feel like i want it. i gotta go to work now <laughs> well it, from being a professor and educating me a little bit throughout this conversation you kind of probably feel like you are at work well an adjunct professor let's not get crazy <laughs> <laughs> kind of a hack really so obviously Indiana Jones and pop culture. Growing up, what, what were some of your favorite movies or TV shows? Oh, geez, growing up, well, the the two main ones. I mean, now this was back when, you know, before we had all these Blu-rays and everything, we had these VHS tapes, right? Yeah. And remember back when, back in the in the early '80s when you got a VHS tape, they were uh, crazy. You know, they were they were hard to come by. You had to like 
movie grade VHS tape was like 75 bucks, you know. I mean, you had to save up for months to get these things. And I used to go down and get... Otherwise, uh, wait and record it off USA. Right, and you'd like go to the video store. You'd not only rent the movies, but you'd also rent the VHS player, you know, and you'd get it for like a weekend. And you'd get a movie and you'd watch it like 17 times on a loop before you had to take it back on Monday. So I think the, stands, the standbys would always be, of course, Raiders, Conan nice. the Barbarian, Oh, and yes. the Road Warrior. I mean, those nice. are those are you know the the movies that I think any any young lad from the early '80s to mid '80s vintage yeah. was raised on. Well, growing up, I mean, those are staple heroes. You know, yeah, you know, Harrison Ford, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, it's just awesome to be a product of the '80s and grow up with that. Well, and what's funny now is just the fact that now we have all these shows like Stranger Things and all this stuff like my daughter's into that capitalize on this entire <laughs> on 80s, 80s revival, right? You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's kind of funny to see how that kind of stuff comes back around. And I, especially with season one of Stranger Things, was honestly impressed on how much like the 80s they, they made it yeah. fit right into history. Yeah. Right down to Winona Ryder being in it. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. If this you got, is from the 80s. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, they definitely have that, so but they've much. got that too. So, yeah, it was, yeah, it's fun to watch that kind of stuff. It's especially funny to see, like, my daughter, who's 12, get all into the into the 80s, which, you know, <laughs> at the time in the 80s, you know, you always, it's funny because, you know, things are always, like, 20, 30 years delayed because in the yeah. 80s, what was cool was the 50s. Right. You know, like, Greece and, you know, everybody wanted to, so you know. motorcycles, you know, high right, You know, and then uh, now the 80s is it's kind of funny because it's sort of popularized a, a time that was really almost ad hoc popularizing something else. So, yeah. But that's uh, that's pop culture for you. It's always recycling. Have you so. seen the film Atomic Blonde? Uh, my yeah. wife watched it the other day. I caught a couple minutes of it, but yeah, it kind of looked. It looks pretty actually good. really good. Yeah. I was I was surprised at how good it was from the soundtrack, the cinematography, direction. Everything's awesome. The acting's on point. John Goodman pops up in there, which I always love. Yeah. Uh, but just the way, because it takes place during the, the end of the Cold War, right. And right before the wall falls, and to kind of be old enough to remember <laughs> to that. To remember those, <laughs> those heady days. It, it was a really good portrayal of those times and what was going on. So. Well, it's also interesting just how, how much of that stuff gets lost. And, and like when you get a, a new generation that, you know, when they think about like the Berlin Wall and the Cold War and everything, yeah. and that this. So much of that stuff isn't even discussed anymore. It's almost like it's kind of swept away under the uh, carpet. Forgotten history. It's a, but that's one of the things that's always kind of, kind of fascinating to me. Like even when you travel and you, in which I've you know done a bit of, but, I mean I think the biggest strength of Americans is the fact that we have a five five minute memory, because we're always <laughs> doing a progress and everything else. But it's also our biggest Achilles heel is that we have a five minute memory. Yeah. And uh, the that lack of a sense of of history and knowledge about history and um it's just like you know we talked about earlier when we were on break we got a little ahead of ourselves yes, we did. even some of the stuff that i did in egypt what's what's so interesting is you could sit in a coffee house in egypt and you can talk to an egyptian and they know more about american history and world history than than, than your average adult does no less your average you know school child i mean they yeah. they're they're pretty steeped in that and they they have that real sense of depth and, and, and where everything comes from. It's just like, you know, when you look at the Middle East, and which we always talk about without getting, of course, into politics itself, yeah. but just, geo, just geo, the geopolitical climate over there, you cannot understand the Middle East and the problems that we have there without looking at World War I. World okay. War I set up every issue that we have there. 
Um, you know, I mean, from carving up countries during the colonial era, grouping people that don't necessarily get along within the same border, right. um, operated by Britain or France. And, uh, you know, Lawrence of Arabia is a classic case. You know, go back and look at Lawrence of Arabia and see how we created the modern Middle East. Which is a fantastic film, but it, is it overly, his, it, well, not overly, but is it historically accurate? Well, it is, it is to an extent. I mean, as far as a lot of that, I mean, Lawrence's role in a lot of that stuff might not, is kind of probably overblown a bit. Uh, but, uh, but even if you read his book, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, talking about how, you know, organizing a lot of the, the Arabs, which, you know, someone argued didn't exist really before they, they were the Arabs, quote unquote, were actually created as a group. Because it was all these different tribal factions, they didn't identify themselves as Arabs or anything else. They didn't classify. Right, they were they were the tribal and clan system folks, you know. And without getting into politics, that's one thing that is a major pet peeve of mine is classifications and almost purposely creating division by classifying yourself right. or you have to be this way, you have to be well, that it's way. Well, like, it's like you know, there's this thing. There's this thing, this internet thing that the kids are really into that I've seen occasionally, <laughs> and even when I popped on Facebook, think Al Gore had something. To you do know, with yeah, that. I think they keep, <laughs> they keep pulled that out of his hip pocket in the late '80s, I think. But um, but it was just it, one of these kind of memes that kind of go by, but it just showed like you know planet Earth from space rotating there, and it says, "Do you see any boundaries or borders?" Yeah. You know, I mean, we're all we're all Earthlings. You know, I mean, what you, all these other things are just artificial. Uh, Absolutely, man-made. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think it's easier, far easier to control a society that is divided over a society that is united. And I think people well, lose focus of that. Well, you can you can look at any society in history. The way that you galvanize a society is you have to make somebody the enemy. Yeah. If you don't make anybody the enemy, you know, making someone else the, the other or the enemy is what galvanizes all of your folks to do what you want them to do. Um, whether or That's not that enemy is real or not. Group A and Group B. Right. It's just, you know, I mean, one of the one of the biggest arguments in the Middle East, and I know Israel has a lot of its own issues, but making Israel the whipping boy of the Middle East for the Iranians and everybody else, Israel doesn't have anything to do with Iran. But but the Iranian, but if, but if you can, you know, or if, but if you can get your population to be so focused on this enemy over here, yeah. maybe they're not paying attention to how screwed up you are when you're actually trying to run this shit yeah. show. Because you're so focused on, on what's going on. Two it's countries, not about me, look at Yeah, look at these guys. These guys are what it's all about. Oh, yeah, sure, we're not perfect, but these yeah. guys are really... And that's just, I mean, and that's up. not to beat up on them. That's a proxy for anything. Yeah. I mean, you that's know... That's just like an said, analogy. Yeah, unless you can make, you know, you always have to make somebody the bad guy in order to get everybody on your team, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, on and on a little bit of a, a lighter note, what, what some of the music you've been listening to lately, what do you jam out to? What do I jam out to? That's a, it's a hard, you know... Frankly, it's pretty. It's it's pretty lame stuff. It's uh, it may not be well that with lame. A, with a new baby at home. I haven't been you know blasting our friends the press gang union too much. <laughs> it's uh, it's been a lot. <laughs> It's been a lot Tommy's of Tommy's not going to dig it? No, well, you know, it's a few months old. He probably would, but I kind of want to keep him in sort of this weird, sedated twilight time so I can get, make him take a nap. So it's been a lot of classical yeah. lately. Go to sleep. Yeah, I've been, I've been throwing down with the yo-yo ma, actually. Um, and, you know, and then, of course, when he uh, finally goes to sleep and I'm doing my own stuff, then I'm back on my usual, uh, you know, Tom Waits kind of nice. kick, you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just kind of shuffle through. I got to really update my old, my old i iTunes because it's uh, it hasn't seen it. It hasn't been refreshed. 
that's not um, necessarily a bad thing. Extremely I, long time. I have Spotify, and I love Spotify because there is so much music and artists that you have access to. But I find myself going back to my outdated iTunes playlist on my iPhone and revisiting a bunch of stuff that's not on Spotify. Yeah, and I've got so, salvage that moment. That's not right. Really it's it, and I've kind of got the little Amazon Prime, but Spotify I think is a lot better than Amazon Prime. They just their stations just aren't set up well. That's how I felt with yeah, Pandora. They start just playing kind of stuff all over the place, and it's like this isn't yeah this isn't Yo Yo Ma's station. <laughs> this is no, crazy talk. Is this? What is no. this stuff? <laughs> that deals in audio books at all, or uh, I know you told me that you never really listened to podcasts until I asked you. Right, I hadn't really. I've actually never listened to a podcast <laughs> before you asked me to do this the other day. Nice. Um, but uh, now, and audio books is tough for me because, as I mentioned earlier, with this long-lived PhD thing, I've got so much I have to read that's non-fiction, basically. Yeah. Um, and. And unfortunately, most of the stuff that I'm trying to read isn't audiobook worthy. Um, nobody, nobody has you know behavioral ecology and lithic yeah. analysis on audio. Nobody wants to pay. And I and I feel like I'm cheating. Somebody to sit down. You know, I'm cheating if I'm that. actually listening to a book for enjoyment rather than you know like well I really have to understand the finer points of stone tools today <laughs> as it relates to the Upper Paleolithic of Siberia. So I can't really like you know throw down with the Handmaid's Tale and all that kind of shit. You know. With two kids at home, do you have very much time to, to watch Netflix shows or uh, TV shows no, that you really dig? No, Nothing. I used to. Well, I used to. My 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 twelve year old is really big into a lot of. Uh, I think it was funny because years ago somebody said, "I think it's great that you're raising her wrong." And I was like, "What? What are you raising like, her What wrong? do you mean?" She was like, yeah. "Your kid thinks it's the '70s. She thinks the Munsters is still on TV." Because <laughs> you know, I just basically I haven't had TV in literally ten years. It's just Netflix and yeah. stuff. So. Emma, wrong with that. My daughter Emma was pretty much raised on like you know the Munsters and all the Ray Harryhausen movies and you know send the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and you know all this kind of stuff. So classic. And then she loves you know Indiana Jones. She's got all these Indiana Jones comic books and all these you know she loves that stuff. That's so, badass. So yeah, we used to watch a lot of stuff, but now with the with our with our latest edition, I'm just we're just all surviving you know through that <laughs> that birth to four months kind of phase. So there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, recreational television watching lately. I can understand and, and respect that. But just, just a little bit curious. Mm -hmm. Is there anything in particular you want to touch base on or talk about that we haven't? I mean, we mentioned your time in the Marines. Yeah, um, well... Motorcycle if, swap meet. If you wanted to get back to a little bit of the archaeology, if you want to talk about, uh, if some people were kind of tuning in for that, the Egypt stuff, I, I think some people find interesting. I, I had a chance to work there a couple different times. Um, it was kind of funny, just kind of... I, much like, I mean, we're not going into too much detail, but even just with my military career and things like that, I, I do tend to wind up in some pretty strange, strange positions um, <laughs> in places that I have no Different business. Different corners of yeah, the world. places I have no business being based on not, there's just really no reason for me to be doing some things. But um, but with the Egypt thing, it, kinda, it was kind of funny. We were talking about it a little bit before, but... I kind of happened into that because, of course, as an archaeologist, everybody's, you know, Egypt is kind of a dream, you know, I mean, to, to be able to yeah. work there. Um, That's the place. It's, it's kind of the place. There's a lot yeah. of stuff there. And, uh, but I have no background in that at all. Um, so it's also bad because, you know, students say, oh, you worked in Egypt. They ask me these questions, and I'm like, well, I, I really don't actually know a whole lot about Egyptology. <laughs> but... Uh, but it kind of came about because there was a there was a guy named Joel Irish who was a physical anthropologist up in Alaska, 
and what he specialized in in physical anthropology was teeth. He was a dental anthropologist. Okay. And he would study teeth because teeth are, are really good hallmarks of, of uh, different kind of groups of folks. And he was basically kind of uh, identifying different migrations of people out of Africa and, and, and other places based on their tooth morphology because that's something that really hangs in there. And he, he had worked at this site. It was called Hierocompolis. Um, in Egypt, and and one time he told me a, a friend of mine who actually lives down in Moab these days, who we nice. met up in Fairbanks, um, so Southern Utah. Right, for people who don't know. Right, Southern Utah. <laughs> He's also an obviously an archaeologist, and and this guy said to us, hey, you know, like the site that I worked at, they're kind of looking for archaeologists, so maybe you guys, you know, send them your resumes and see what they think. And I was like, okay, yeah, right. You know, I mean, we got no business being there. <laughs> sure, I'll send him my resume. Yeah, and why see not? what happens. So we fired our resumes off, and we pretty much got a letter back saying that, you know, okay, yeah, this is, these are the dates, and, and buy your plane tickets, and we'll reimburse you, and we'll fly you over here, and be here for a couple months. And, and we, were, we were like, okay, well, uh, I guess we're going to have to figure this shit out. <laughs> we're going to have to fake it until we make it on this yeah, deal. I was just going to say, um, you make so, uh, But yeah, it turned out, so we went, and in 2004, we went for about 10 weeks, we worked on a, about a six, about 5,900 years old, about 6,000-year-old cemetery. It was a commoner cemetery. Um, and we did some major excavations. I think we excavated that season about 117 burials. Holy shit. Um, they call them tombs there. Um, it's kind of a misnomer because when you think of an Egyptian tomb, you think of yeah. these grandiose things. But they just call oh, yeah. any grave a tomb. So, uh, And these were common folks. Um, but, so does uh, it be like workers, farmers? Right. Um, and then the reason tradesmen, craftsmen, etc. Right, not, it's just kind of like your average Joe Dokes, right? Okay. Um, but and the reason for the excavation is is that, as we know from our from our all of our sixth grade social studies classes, that the, the Nile used to flood every year back in the day, right. and it would make you know, and people would uh, be able to support themselves, and to the point where they had a few months off every year, they could build pyramids and things like that, and big mass public <laughs> works. But uh, after they dammed up the Nile in the I think sixties. 60s, 70s, um, the Aswan Dam, the, the Nile now no longer floods. And the way that they do a lot of, uh, of the agriculture now is through irrigation. Well, the problem uh -huh. is, is you have all these 6,000, say a 6,000 year old site that's out in the middle of the desert and it's completely, you know, dried out with the sand and the sand has certain properties that actually help with mummification and other things that we know now. But these things were all preserved. It's the, only, it's the kind of preservation you only get in the United States, say in a cave site. But okay. over there, you could have this open air site and things could be a meter deep and yet they're perfectly preserved. Organics like skin, hair, leather. Is that just from the leather. water table? It's, well, and that was part of it. And that's actually, okay. that's good you said because that's exactly where I was going with this is the yeah, fact yeah, that because there smart. was no, there you got it. <laughs> because basically the way that you preserve organic material like skin and hair and textiles and things like that is to have them either wet all the time, constantly, or dry all the time. Okay. You don't want fluctuations. Um, but now fluctuation is going to right. That's in, you know encourage something's wet and dry. It's going to deteriorate. Okay. So what was happening is now that they've got this sort of land reclamation and they're doing irrigation, the water table is rising on these sites around the Nile. So basically, it wasn't necessarily the crux of this excavation originally to excavate all these cemeteries, but it became a salvage operation because the water table was rising and this stuff was all going to be destroyed anyways. Um, so then, so we started on these salvage excavations. Nice. Uh, little Murphy's. Another crap. Little Murphy's. Yep. Didn't mean to interrupt. Um, no, you're continue. good. And uh, <laughs> so that's kind of what we focused on. And, and we, so we did the commoner cemetery, which was called HK, I think, 43. 
in 2004. We were HK-43. Yeah, like, number 43. Yeah, I was thinking more like THX-1130. Yeah, it sounds, sounds top, pretty good. Yacht, oh, yeah. sure, thank you. Um, so we did that, and we did a lot of excavation on those. And then in 2007, I went back, and we focused on a, I think, 3,700-year-old uh, cemetery that was um, some Nubians, um, which was kind of interesting. It was a little different culturally uh, uh, material. Uh, coming out of, because basically Hierakopolis is in southern Egypt, also known as Upper Egypt. Okay. Um, and, you know, when you look at a map of Egypt, you, you typically think, we always think of up on a map as being north. Yeah, But if you actually, Absolutely. but in Egypt, Upper Egypt is actually the southern portion because the Nile flows from the south to the north. On so the opposite sort of, side of Right, the so you're kind of getting closer to the headwaters. Uh, no, it's not the other side of the equator, but it's just no. because the, <laughs> the, the good, good call. <laughs> It's like when you go to Australia, the toilets flush the wrong way, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's all that <laughs> But um, because the Nile flows out of you know Ethiopia and, and, and up through the Sudan, it's flowing south and north. So the upper is upper, kind of because it's closer to the headwaters of the Nile, whereas lower Egypt is kind of out in the delta going into okay. the Mediterranean. Um, but but basically, Nubia is present-day Sudan. So... So you're kind of at that sort of interface between southern Egypt and and this and the Nubians in okay. Sudan. So so you had this Nubian population that had come in, um, and it was just really inter just interesting. Different kinds of artifacts, different kind of burial patterns, um, two thousand years removed from the previous excavation. So it was it was just kind of a neat thing to do and to be able to see all that stuff firsthand. Instead of being more of the same, something right. Well, well it is so. kind of more of the same, but something entirely different. Right, even in yeah. the same site. I mean, this site's been occupied probably for, um, you know, in in the Egyptian chronology, it would probably you know be occupied for six, seven, eight thousand years, and in the early part of it, we would call the pre-dynastic. So yeah, we all know about the pharaohs, right? Yeah, that's the absolutely. dynastic succession. That's so Hierakopolis, the Egyptian dynasty, right? Right. Hierakopolis is important because it's where the Scorpion King, played by the Rock, of course. <laughs> Um, actually united upper and lower Egypt. Nice feelings on Dwayne Johnson. Well, you know, I mean, but I mean, this is the guy. I, I saw the movie poster. He did. I saw the documentary. He did. He did. King. You know, and uh, but uh, so it was kind of interesting to actually work in that spot where 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 this guy was and and where they united upper and lower Egypt into one kingdom, and this was sort of the seat of power at the time. So was that character based off an actual individual? Yeah. Historically? Yeah. No shit. Um, and was he called well, the yeah, Scorpion? Yes and no. I mean, there's still some debate on whether it's a mythological figure or not. Okay. But obviously somebody had to be the first pharaoh. And it's also, he's also uh, termed sometimes King Menes or the Scorpion King. One of the reasons he got the Scorpion King moniker was one of the things that he did find at the site was a mace head, which is like a war hammer. Okay. And it was carved into the shape of a scorpion that they actually recovered from the site. And there's actually That's also cool a, a hieroglyph of him. Um, on a on an early tomb wall, holding that that hammer, but it's so, not necessarily clear if that individual actually existed or was a. It's not clear if he looked like Dwayne Johnson. Okay, yeah, um, but it's possible. That's fair. But yeah. It, but yeah, it's nobody uh, knows. Nobody really knows. <laughs> but um, maybe Doc Brown and Marty have it's, had an adventure, or Rick and Morty. It's it's possible and, and met said individual it's and confirmed. Very possible. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but it really but a really neat place to really neat place to do some do some work there yeah no that's got to be awesome um i think we're kind of coming up on an hour is there anything yeah. in particular that any questions you have for me or anything that i could kind of answer or clarify for you or um well i don't know i think we, we're trying to just run, run this thing out run it into the dirt <laughs> get it where yeah, we can get exactly. it um 
When's the next SCU fundraiser and, and event? Uh, the next event will probably be the home opener at Rio Tinto Stadium. We will absolutely have a huge tailgate. Everybody's always welcome, and we're kind of the tattooed hooligans that dress in black and say the fuck word a bunch, and some people think we're unapproachable, but I think if you are actually willing to approach us, you'll find we're overly welcoming, and we want people to participate in this with us. You know, division is it's Salt City United, not Salt City divided. So uh, hopefully this year we'll have a big push and drive towards unity with the other supporters groups. And if you're at the tailgate lot off of 90th South, just right there by the liquor store, please come over, say hi, get some free food, um, have a cold drink with us, and let's bullshit and get to know one another. You know, sounds excellent. I'll do you a, a quick pro quo if I see it at the swap meet. Yes, sir, uh, you will. You'll see me at the opener. Nice. <laughs> well, I think the opener is before the swap meet. Well, so. in that case, then you're really going to be over the barrel, because if I go to the opener, no, I better I, see it. So I, again, I'm making <laughs> the priority to go to the uh, the official top of the Wasatch Motorcycle Swap Meet. Wasatch Front, the 7th Annual Wasatch Front Motorcycle Swap Meet, which you can find very easily by typing in the... Seventh annual Wasatch Front <laughs> Motorcycle Swap Meet on Facebook. Um, uh, there's uh, the information is on the page. I try to upload at least a couple of uh, vintage bike photos or any other kind of cool photos I could find at least a couple times a week to keep the page rolling, keep nice. people interested. I try not to overdo it so I'm not you know populating everybody's feeds so the way they yeah. get mad and unfriend me. Spamming, yeah, people I don't want to spam people. Well, we try to post enough things to keep it interesting, keep it going. I would say um, uh, if you're interested in the swap meet, definitely check out the Facebook page. But as I've always said on the Facebook page too, it's really a grassroots thing and it relies on individuals bringing their stuff. Nice. So clean out your garage. It's your chance to get rid of stuff. You might have something you think is worth a million dollars, but when it's sitting in your garage, it's not making you any money. If you make five <laughs> bucks on it at the swap meet, it's five bucks you don't have now. Yeah, so, absolutely. So clean it out, set up a table, put out a tarp. Um, we do it rain or shine. Um, five bucks get you through the gate. If you bring a, you can set up one table. You can set up fifty, nice. and we will accommodate you. But you know, please bring stuff because that's that's the draw, and that's where you're going to get. Uh, not only you're going to get some, hopefully, some money and some good trade goods out of it, but it makes it for a good day when people have something to look at. Well, and it gives you an opportunity to be part of your motorcycle community right. within the state of Utah and the Salt Lake Valley. Right, and that's and that's going to have work and meet people to ride with and right, and it's the crux of know everybody. The, the whole idea of the swap meet was uh, originally it's a two wheel world. Get out there and meet your friends. Um, it's we're open to everybody. You cannot have a bike. You cannot like motorcycles. You can still have a good time at the swap meet. You can you can do anything you'd like there. We are equal opportunity. We don't turn anybody away. Please come and have a great time. Nice. Well, and I think maybe not this year, but next year. It, I, I'm kind of on this kick where this is season one of the podcast. So there's going to be multiple seasons, and I want to have reoccurring guests. And if you're down, maybe the next time I have you on is not necessarily we wait until you know, the 2019 Swap Meet, but let's do a live podcast from the Swap Meet. We could do a live podcast. I, I think you should probably uh, wait and see what the comments on this one are first <laughs> before you give me yeah. another invitation. I really don't give a shit. And uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I, yeah. want, I want people to tune in. I want people to love it and uh, to check it out and I'm, support what I'm doing. But I'm, if they don't, fuck them. I'm always willing <laughs> to burn burn some time with you. Nice. So and From any location. That'd be great. I know we've got a kiddo, the pity has been... 
wagging her tail and snoring over the second <laughs> half. Um, is there anybody you want to shout out? Anything you want to say before we sign off? Uh, well, I, I will give props to all my friends at SCU, which I, of which I have Thank many. Um, thanks to my wife for letting me leave that. My wife Simona Flanagan for letting me leave the house. I and, would like to thank her as well. And, thank and, you. And uh, abandoning her with the four-month-old <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon. I know she has plans this evening, so we have our own quid pro quo going on with that. And nice. uh, and and that's I think all we got. Excellent, Tom. Well, uh, I appreciate you. I get I give you a cheers. Oh, hey, Murphy's ha- Irish. Happy St. Patty's Day. Yeah, cilantro. And that's a wrap on episode eight of the Dead Serial Podcast. I'd like to thank Tom for taking some time out of his Sunday to come over and shoot the shit, catch up. Don't forget to check out Joseph Limbaugh and Ben Johnson on the Fan Addicts YouTube channel. You can also follow the Instagram account for this podcast at dead underscore serial. Do no harm, take no shit. I'd also like to give a big thank you to Lenny Lashley of Dark Buster and the Street Dogs. I keep reaching out to Lenny and he's letting me use his music and my project and I really do appreciate it. Looking forward to the new Dark Buster. Definitely looking forward to the new Street Dogs. Ladies and gentlemen, stand and deliver.